We're going to do a responsive reading this morning as our call to worship. So you'll see the words on the screen. The words that are bold and in italics are where all of us read that together. We're not going to read the scripture reference. You don't have to say Rev 1-8 after it. That's just the, the reference where that comes from. So I'll read the first part. We'll read the second part together. And this, we do this as a way of bringing ourselves present to this place. We do this as a way of confessing what we know to be true, even when we don't necessarily feel it. But we confess it with our mouth as a way to get our hearts lined up to receive the word of the Lord together. So will you stand with me this morning as we read through this? Come to worship Jesus Christ, Alpha and Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Come to worship Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the king of the earth. Good shepherd, true vine. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome everybody on this Christ the King Sunday. This is the last Sunday of our liturgical year, of the, the year of the church. The church year calendar actually starts next week, with the beginning of Advent with that. And it's an appropriate message, an appropriate text this morning that we look at in this week as we study in our individual study and in our small groups of the heart, the very heart of Jesus that we're going to see expressed in our text this morning. I don't know about y'all, but I've been captivated. I was out on the West Coast just a couple weeks ago and saw for myself the smokes, the flame, well not the flame, but the smoke from the uh, Woolsey fire and following the campfire up in Northern California, always looking at the images, seeing the news feed come up. And I was particularly struck by an article that came up that had photographs of people, or exactly, not, not the people, but with what people grabbed at the last minute. As the fire was barreling down on them, what would you grab? What, I mean, think about it for a minute. If, you're, if, a, if a fire was barreling down on your house right now, getting it fixed in your mind, what would you grab? What would you go for? What are the things that are precious to you? Well, the things that we saw in these pictures were not necessarily things that you would think of. One person grabbed a box of Polaroid photos while forgetting their guitar. Another grabbed a, a whole stack of her husband's vintage t-shirts <laughs> while forgetting other things. And, and the consistent testimony, even of an emergency room nurse who was trained to respond in crisis trauma situations, her testimony was, when that moment comes, you can't think. Rational thought leaves you. All of, all of the ways that you think you're going to respond just go out the window. And she said, even if I had had a list in front of me, I wouldn't have been able to focus on reading it. See, fire reveals things about us. Fire teaches us 
about ourselves. It teaches us about what's important. It teaches us about how prepared we are. It teaches us about how we respond in those moments. In our text today, Jeremiah the prophet, the young prophet, is warning the people of Israel that fire is coming. God's judgment is coming. And we're going to learn what that fire means, what it reveals about Israel, but also what it teaches us about ourselves. So pray with me as we begin this morning. Christ Jesus, you are the King, and we honor you this morning. We avail ourselves to the presence of the one that you have sent, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to teach us and lead us into all truth. And we know that all this is done to the glory and honor of God the Father. Fill our imaginations with your words, with your truth, with a longing for your kingdom. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to discern, hearts to love and obey. On this Sunday, as we proclaim your word and your glory, in the name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> Last week, we made this assertion that a certain historian had made that if Jerusalem had fallen to Sennacherib, if Jerusalem had fallen to the Assyrians, that monotheism would have been wiped out, that we wouldn't be here today, that essentially it would have done away with Judaism and thus Christianity. And it's an interesting thing to ponder. We don't know that for sure. It's an interesting thing to ponder. How God saved Israel in that moment of crisis from external force. But he's not going to do that this time. Now the Babylonians are beating down the door of Jerusalem. And I'm sure the people were remembering their history and looking back to good King Hezekiah and praying and hoping and maybe even depending on the fact that God would once again deliver them from the hands of the oppressors, the hands of the pagans who were beating down the doors. It's not going to happen this time. This time the Babylonians commit. This time the temple is burned. This time the people are carried off into captivity. But something happens in that process. Something happens just as important as what God did with saving them from destruction earlier, he now does it through the destruction of Jerusalem. And understanding that, understanding that God is achieving his purpose through judgment is essential to us understanding God and even to understanding Jesus and most of his message, which we'll see as we go on. I will say this though, as we've studied, and this is the last Sunday of our Encountering Covenant study, that maybe never has the covenant been in more danger than it was at this moment. Not from external forces, though, but from an internal corruption that becomes so prevalent among the people that God had no other choice than to redeem them 
by fire. Well, let's look at the text. You'll notice this week we've included the Swahili version in our text as we go. So feel free to read in whichever one you would like to read in. <laughs> I'm going to attempt the English this morning. <clears throat> The Lord's, the Lord's message came to me. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. I answered, O sovereign Lord, really, I do not know how to speak well enough for that. I cry, I am too young. The Lord said to me, do not say I am too young, but go to whomever I send you and say whatever I tell you. <coughs> Do not be afraid of those to whom I send you, <clears throat> for I will be with you to protect you, says the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I will most assuredly give you the words to speak. You are to speak for me. Know for certain that I hereby give you the authority to announce to nations and kingdoms that they will be uprooted and torn down, destroyed and demolished, rebuilt and firmly planted. It is worth weeks of study just to know the character and the person of Jeremiah, the prophet who is speaking this words, whose text we're encountering this week. Suffice it to say, there are very few figures, if any, in all of Scripture who endured as much as Jeremiah did. Constantly persecuted for his faithfulness, constantly being attacked, vilified, assaulted for being faithful to this word. And in a way, he set up kind of with a double dose of that prophetic imagination when we see it. We, we hear echoes of Moses, right? When God appeared to Moses, he said, I, I can't do it. I can't speak well. God says, I will give you words. We hear echoes of the prophet Isaiah. I am woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. God touches his lips with a coal. Likewise, Jeremiah's lips are touched here. It's almost as, as if he needed that double dose of assurance before he goes forth into his ministries. But we're going to see something here that it's critical to us understanding. And that is the difference between worldly condemnation and God's judgment. Because Jeremiah was sent to preach, to prophesy a message that surely would have been difficult to hear. Would have been met with rejection, with resistance. <clears throat> Stark in some ways. But we have to understand there is the world's condemnation and then there is God's judgment. The world's condemnation shames. It utterly destroys without hope, without mercy, and without compassion. It delights in the destruction of of the object which it attacks. God's judgment is not like that. God's judgment is always restorative. The end goal is always love, and the primary motivation is also love. God's judgment uproots and levels for the purpose of rerouting, reordering, and redeeming. And that's where we're going to find the hope in this message. 
So we skip ahead a few chapters to Jeremiah chapter 7, starting with verse 1. And this is what's said. The Lord said to Jeremiah, stand in the gate of the Lord's temple and proclaim the message. Listen to the Lord's message, all you people of Judah who have passed through these gates to worship the Lord. The Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, if you do, I will allow you to continue in this land, to live in this land. Stop putting your confidence in the false belief that says we are safe. The temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. Now, anytime we see something repeated three times, that is, there's a particular emphasis there. We see that the people are putting their trust in their observances. They're putting their trust in a position that they think they have attained it. It's not in a dynamic relationship, but rather in the trappings of being God's people. And we're going to ask ourselves, what is the sin that they ultimately fail to repent of? What is the sin that they don't stop doing? Well, Jesus will reveal that later here. But on the external, on the outside, the people have lost their identity, their covenantal identity. They have assumed the identity of the people around them, even though they just have a religious veneer. This is what the fire is going to reveal. And this is what the fire is going to restore. Jeremiah goes on. He says, you must change the way you have been living and do what is right. Now, wait a minute. They just said, wait. They just proclaimed the temple of the Lord is here. They've been observing the religious activities. Jeremiah and God are looking at something else. You must treat one another fairly. Stop oppressing resident foreigners who live in your land. Children who have lost their fathers. Women who have lost their husbands. Stop killing innocent people in this land. Stop paying allegiance to other gods. That will only bring about your ruin. If you stop doing these things, I will allow you to continue to live in the land which I gave to your ancestors as a lasting possession. But just look at you. You are putting your confidence in a false belief that I will deliver you. You steal. You murder. You commit adultery. You lie when you swear on oath. You sacrifice to the god Baal. You pay allegiance to other gods whom you have not previously known. And then you come and stand in my presence in this temple... I have claimed as my own and say, we are safe. You think you are so safe that you go on doing all those hateful sins. Do you think this temple I have claimed as my own is to be a hideout for robbers? You had better take note, for I have seen myself what you have done, says the Lord. Friends, this is serious. We talked about it in the teaching team this week. How just weeks ago, we recounted how Israel had demanded, gone to God, and basically demanded, give us a king so that we can be like the other nations. And God warned them. He said, you don't want a king. You don't want a king. Because this is what's going to happen if you get a king. 
And he listed it. He enumerated the things that would happen. And lo and behold, not three kings into it. Saul, David, and then Solomon. By Solomon's day, all of the things God were coming true. We talked about how this week, essentially, they've done the same thing with temple worship. They've done the same thing with their religion. Even though God said, yes, here, build my temple, do this. They took that thing that God gave them and they started using it just like the pagans used their religion. See, Israel looked around and they said, oh, I see what happens. The pagans, they live however they want and then they go and worship so that they can feel okay. So that they can have the identity of being righteous even though they live totally differently. Let's do that. Now maybe it wasn't as clear cut. Maybe it wasn't as logical as that. But that in the end is what happened. Is that they assumed that their religion was like every other religion. It was just a veneer to cover the way that you wanted to live. It was a way to bargain with God and get what you wanted out of it. It was a way to feel good about yourself when the guilt of sinning became overwhelming. You could go and do something and have that guilt relieved so that you could go on doing the very thing that made you feel good. That's where Israel is now. Their worship in the temple is no different than any pagan worship going on all the way around them. That's why they found it so easy to go into the temple of Baal, go into the temple of Asherah, go into all these other pagan temples and just do that because the form, it all seemed like the same thing. Well, God would have no number. Because that's not what God God is not after religious ritual. God is not after performing. God is after our hearts. God is after us to be a people who have been forgiven much. We in turn give much with God. All through this message, as we've studied it this week, I kept hearing the words of Jesus. It, it gave me insight into Jesus' messages like I've never had before. Why did he choose? You think, have you ever thought about that? Like, why did Jesus choose the parables that he did? Why did he choose the messages that he did? Why did he choose to focus so much of his righteous anger on the Pharisees, on the people, the religious people, and extend so much grace to those who have been excluded? The outcasts, the aliens, the foreigners, the refugees, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the widows, the orphans. Jesus embodies the heart here of God that comes through these prophecies to Jeremiah. While, of course, in our text, it is the voice of God the Father or the host of the angel armies, however it's expressed here, that same heart is the heart of Jesus. If you want to know what the sin of the people here is, the sin of the people is that they had been forgiven. They had been blessed. And they forgot that. 
And they used that very blessing, that very position, that very covenantal position with God to oppress others. They had been delivered. They had been restored. They had been established as a kingdom. And yet they turned around and did the very thing that had been done to them when they were in captivity. And they justified it by saying, we have the temple. We have the temple. Now, before we get too far down the road of feeling righteously indignant against those obviously blind Israelites, I think we have to remember, at least I do. I get it. I totally get it. Now, I'm not saying that I would be the one out there murdering or oppressing or offering things to Baal. But I'll tell you what, I'm pretty sure I would have sat by and let it happen. Oh, I may have had, you know, I wish those people would stop doing those things. But what I've got up like Jeremiah and called him out. This is the great temptation that we have who have privilege. We who have power, we who have privilege, we who have been blessed, we who have been forgiven, we who know the grace of God is just to assume that that's just for Because it cost us something to, to oppose that. It will always cost us something to stand against that, to speak up, to not go along with it. There was a member of our church here that um, just this week endured kind of our, the attack of our day and age by getting doxxed. This person had posted and been very vocal against some of the systemic racism that we're seeing exposed in our society and as a result had all their personal information spread out and distributed to various radical groups in hopes that they would be attacked, that this person would be attacked, that this person would have their accounts corrupted, they were slandered. That sat with me this week as I thought about this teaching. We think about Jesus as he comes into the world. Because see, all this, this, this is what's going to happen. The people aren't going to repent. They're not going to listen to Jeremiah. They're going to be overcome. They're going to be exiled. The temple's going to be destroyed. They're going to be carried off. And in that, God, we know that God is going to use that to restore, to refine, to call out what is true for the people, to establish them in what they really need. But they don't really fully get it. Because by the time Jesus comes along, they're doing the same thing again. They're back at it. See, that is that pervasive corruption that we have to fight against. Not just Israel, but us. Not just us, but me. That pervasive corruption of forgetting how much I've been forgiven, how much I've been blessed, 
how much it is my obligation. Not because it's what's owed in anything, but it's what's owed out of what I've been given. It's not I'm earning anything. I'm not earning anything. But I'm responding to God by standing up and saying no. By working against the systemic evil that we see in our world. We are about to enter into Advent. And the Advent's awesomeness, this, this time of welcoming, of preparing our hearts to welcome Jesus. And while many of us understand that Lent, the time of Lent, is a time of repentance, it's a time of renunciation, it's time of letting go, most of us don't know Advent has a similar thing. While Advent ends with a celebration that we're more accustomed to, the weeks of Advent are to help us focus our attention and to help us renounce those things which keep us from making room for Jesus. I think this message does an admirable job of setting us on a true course for Advent. That the words of the prophet are so <coughs> appropriate. Not, not because of any particular thing, but because it's chronic with us, God. It was chronic with Israel and it's still chronic with us in the church. To forget how much we've been forgiven. To forget how blessed we are. And to forget that ultimately we receive that yes for our own healing, but also for the healing of others. <clears throat> also for the good of others in that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And I want us to consider during this time of worship Look, I'm not Jeremiah. I'm not up here saying that fire, some kind of fire is imminent. But we also can't ignore this. We can't just pass it off as another Bible study. I think there is something here for us. And maybe it's the image of the fire, of the victims of the fire in Northern California that we need to have in our, in our head. As we think about what is true, what is pure, what is good, the things we want to grab, the things we want to hold on to, the things we want to take with us. Maybe it's that image that we need to take away. And then live our lives in such a way that if it came, if the fire was to come, we wouldn't be left grabbing worthless things, but we would hold on to what is real, what is true, and what is good.
I told the worship team as we were preparing this morning that as we increasingly make this table the center of our worship, I don't know that I can preach a message like this without it. I don't know that I can say the words that I've said without knowing that it was going to be followed by this. Because this is the tangible proof of God's long-suffering, patience, and love towards us. This, ta this table is the tangible taste and feel that God has not, will not forsake us. That though our sins are great, God's grace is greater. And that we can come and receive this with the knowledge that whatever God destroys, God will rebuild. Whatever God uproots, God will reread. Whatever God takes away, God will redeem. Thank you.